Yeah, I, I, you mentioned your voice and you're, you're, you're very, very self-critical, aren't you, Karin? Because I tell you, if there's one thing that uh, everybody who I've spoken to who has listened to any of uh, the podcasts um, and they normally uh, stop in um, by listening to, to your podcast, um, they all say how fabulous your voice is. And so it's funny to me whenever I hear you be critical of your own voice, um, because I, I know have, that everybody I loves your voice. I had a very, voice. very clear voice and I had speech training from day one when I was 14, 15. Then we had speech training when uh, we were in translators and interpreter school. Uh, in America, I had to speak absolute perfect German. Uh, no inkling of Rhinish accent, whatever. Uh, so I'm I'm very conscious of of my voice. Yes, that's true. Mm. But you still have a fabulous voice, um, and that's also true. Um, even if you are so uh, I critical. hear it in a different way. That's that's, that's <laughs> yes. It. Yeah, I don't know. I I am. Um, I I'm like that too. I I'm not sure I necessarily appreciate my own voice. However, what I've what I decided to do some time ago was just to ignore it. It's my voice. If if other people say it's okay, then that's cool. And if they say it's not okay, there's not much I can do about it. It's my voice. Right. So, right. Um, you know. That's the blessing of old age. You accept. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, I'm. Uh, I was very late in accepting certain things. Yes, that's true. Okay. Yeah. It's 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 interesting though because sometimes you know the most uh, different people come to uh, similar conclusions at completely different times, um, and it does make you wonder really if everybody to an extent comes to a similar conclusion, then why can't we just cut to the chase and teach people right. at, at you know it. it make it part of the educational system that, you know, at some point you are going to all agree. So let's forget all the trouble and just agree that some things are okay. And if we yes. learn a bit of harmony, it's okay, isn't it? Uh, tolerance is something you can learn, yes. Even tolerance to yourself. Mm. Which is sometimes the most difficult in uh, a sort of free market style system where we are taught the value of competition and sometimes the competition is our own selves, and that, that makes it quite difficult because you can never win. Uh, that's true. Um, I'm, in not, I'm not competitive. I never was. Uh, when I was playing tennis uh, against my friends, I didn't care whether I won or lost. Um, so I let them win most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, no, I, I, was, <laughs> I was, didn't do it on purpose, but I stepped back to steps. Um, in terms of everything else I've done, the only thing that really pushed me on was um, a certain type of self-criticism um, with a terrible amount of per perfectionism. Mm. Uh, I wanted everything perfect. So I tried very, very hard. And uh, I that's why I could swim in America, mm. because that's uh, at the time there was no competition, but it was very necessary that all of us pulled together. And um, later, when that's the uh, the uh, period we are coming into, uh, from about 1999. The um, next 10 years were pretty heavy mm. in terms of the different things I was doing. And I will later enlist them just one after the other. And then you tell me what you want to hear about. Um, because it was a tremendous amount and it really got me to my limits. But it was fun anyway, and I'm very happy I did it. Could we could we not do all of them? Because there really is no, no, no rush. There's no rush. Yeah. If it takes uh, three, four, five podcasts to do these next ten years, I, I'd be happy to take as many sessions as is needed. It's it's just you know it's uh, it's up to you. You know the speed with which you wish to communicate the, these experiences. Uh, it's no, completely. I, I let you decide. But I want what I thought I would do is give us just a brief. Mm. Uh, preview of 
all the different things that happened in the next years. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you if you mention what you think, then um, uh, and then you can step in. Okay. Yeah. Just yeah. We'll just uh, we'll just. I mean, I will consider this as as already having us having begun, um, and so therefore I, I will just have to do a little bit of uh, editing earlier. Uh, to you know, just at the beginning to remove my silly introduction. Um, but then, yeah, please feel free to yeah, enlighten me uh, as to which topics you want to or you think you think are most uh, yeah, uh, important. Well, since the next uh, step is the uh, active pen work, I can start with um, when I moved from. A German-speaking writers abroad pen center and was invited to join German pen because I was living in Germany. I started to help with their writers in prison uh, work. Um, I was invited to their conferences uh, as a member of German-speaking writers abroad. And it was, um, I thought, time to make a choice and uh, step into Germany, not just uh, physically. So I um, became a member of German Pen in in '97, and two years later, um, there were all kinds of preparations for uh, a new election, and we had a president who was the first non-German writer ever as president of German Pen. And I felt, because he was very good and he was a lovely um, poet uh, and a good friend, and I decided I step into his shoes as writers in prison, um, pres uh, committee member or vice president, if they vote me in because he was uh, at that point running for president so in in a way that was the first initiation into writers in prison in act into active work for a pen center uh, writers in prison as such is a committee that you have to enter it's a committee that is organized through international pen in london um, you have to enter the committee and um, join in the work, but you don't have to as a pen center. The pen centers are free to choose their own committees or their own type of work. They are autonomous. Um, and German Pen was very, very uh, active in writers in prison and later also in writers in exile. Writers in exile was not a committee. It was a network. But all the other committees, German Pen was not very active in and was not very uh, interested in. Um, okay, uh, German Pen started in 1997. In 2000, I was voted in as uh, vice president uh, for writers in prison which I stayed for seven years until 2007. Mm. Almost uh, immediately, I was also chosen to uh, become member of the board of the Heinrich Böll House in Düren, which was um, the house where Heinrich Böll had lived and died, and which had been um, organized into a... Um, artists refuge refuge so we had scholarships for half a year four months for some four or five individuals or families and uh, this came very well into my work for writers in exile for german pen and later also for international pen um so the bull house um Involvement came in 2001, and it stayed for some 18 years. I only stepped out um, recently. The um, 
during that time for the Heinrich Böll House of in 2002 and 2004, I organized poetry matinees with uh, international guests from all over. Uh, the organization was together with a friend from Holland and uh, we had two wonderful events except in terms of uh, price uh, effort uh, and results. It wasn't enough for the people who were giving the money, so they stopped it, although it was it had international acclaim, actually. Um, that came also with uh, being on the board in 2001 to 2004 of the jury in the Künstlerdorf Schöppingen, which is a, an artist's uh, organization with some 23 or, or even more scholarships uh, recipients every year, uh, writers and uh, painters and musicians, half of them from Germany, half of them from foreign countries. That was a very interesting experience. And um, then came the work that was basically going on alongside. Um, but the work for German Pen was the one at the base. I was doing everything. I uh, was more on the phone with the foreign office or with um, embassies where uh, our charges had been uh, molested or were thrown into prison. Um, it was really work networking on an official basis, networking on an unofficial basis, building your own committee with your friends. And I had a lot of international friends. So I had a lot of insight and input into my understanding of what was going on in the world. And that was very important because in the first years, um, we were in, or I was, for German Pen, in five subcommittees of Writers in Prison, which was Mexico, China, Africa, uh, Turkey, and Iran. And that was heavy, because uh, in Iran and in Turkey, there were more people in prison than anywhere else. Um, later, China caught up, and Turkey changed its uh, its uh, methods and kept them hanging. Uh, they were not thrown into prison. Their um, trials were postponed and postponed and postponed to really uh, have an effect on the society, on, on their colleagues and on those who were in, in front of uh, the jury. Uh, not the jury, in front of the court. Um, this I got firsthand when I was in Turkey during the trial of Orhan Pamuk. There was a an evening before when one of our active uh, our our activists in in not our activists he was one of the major activists in Turkey had invited everyone who was waiting for their trial. And there were almost 40 people, from lawyers to judges to writers to whatever. That was the night before the trial of Oran Pamuk. Um, the trial was could have been scary. As I said, I don't scare easily. Um, on the other side of the street was were rows and rows of um, rightists, Turks, from the Grey Wolves to other groups, to uh, Kemalists and whatever. Uh, and they were trying to threaten us, and we weren't quite sure whether not one of them would pick up a gun and shoot him. So we were in a group of some 50 observers, most of them from international pen centers, and they even dared to touch one of the English members of parliament uh, which to us was was a sign it can really get uh, bad. 
The trial in itself was strange because there was a group of some 15, 20 uh, uh, lawyers who were violently against freedom of the press and freedom of writing. And they were actively um, threatening the, uh, in, the important writers who were there also. Yasha uh, Kemal was there. Uh, and he was being threatened and he was pushing against it. He was very vocal, uh, which allowed me to um, understand that the opposition in Turkey was at that time very, very uh, strong. And um, but it needed to be strong because the, the pressure from the government was very strong. Um, the. During those years, I had, or just before, I had uh, met a number of Nigerian authors in the line of um, organizing that anthology for Holman Verlag. And one of them had called me from England and had said, I'm going back to uh, Nigeria. And I said, you know, if anything happens, call me. You can... We'll do anything we can to get you out where, out whatever trouble you are in. Um, six days later, we heard that he had been imprisoned. And we didn't know whether he was being tortured, whether he had enough food, whether we, we were frantic. So in a way, we organized um, in Germany, um, contact to the Goethe House, since I'd also been part of the Goethe House at one point, I knew the system and I uh, got in touch with the person in Nigeria from the Goethe House. And she was lovely. She uh, knew him very well. And we were able to get some money to her for her to bribe the uh, guardsman and get the information we wanted and get him what he needed, like uh, soap and, and hygiene stuff. And uh, he came out later after six, three, six months. And uh, we saw him again when he came to Germany for a scholarship in, in uh, Stuttgart, at which point, again, uh, I was called, Karen, can you please... Uh, do a book for me because they give me the chance to have a German translation of my uh, work. Uh, so within, I think, eight months, I translated a book of poetry, uh, poetry I loved. And um, it was published and he was happy. And we had been in touch for a long time until he was in America and then he was in Nigeria again and so on and so forth. So um, all these things um, come together when you get into a situation where you cannot help. I had met um, Anna Politkovskaya uh, quite a number of times. She had gotten uh, the German pen Hermann Kesten Award or medal and prize and during that time she was already under pressure and I had approached her and had said you know when and if you need help we always have some way through international pen or German pen to get you a place to hide or to survive in exile and she didn't want any of that she went back and it didn't take very long and in when was it? It was in 2006, in October, that she was murdered in front of her house in Moscow. We were devastated. And just over half a year later, we were twice as devastated because a good friend we had met and we had dealings with doing many, many uh, instances, particularly our director of Writers in Prison in London, 
had very close contact with him and I had met him at the book fair and at the uh, Pamuk event as one of the nicest and warmest people I ever met. And he was killed on 19th of June, 2007. Um, you cannot... Um, they, sorry, can I say, what the, um, so Anna Politkovskaya was related to um, her work for the uh, war in Chechnya, if I'm... In Chechnya and for her work with her paper and uh, her anti-Putinism, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Um, I was able to convince German pen a year after his death, that the next Penn Award, the uh, Kesten Medal and Prize, would be given to Argos, the newspaper that uh, Rantig had uh, managed. And his wife came to Germany to pick up the prize. Uh, I wasn't able to go. This was uh, for one reason or another. I was I was not available. So I never met her. But uh, I have very fond memories of both Anna and Han Dink. And those are the moments that you really would like to have missed in the work for Penn. Mm. You mentioned before your interactions with Han Dink. So I mean, he was actually an individual who you, you met uh, a couple of times, I think. So you have, like, um, it's, it wasn't just simply uh, sort of distant pen pal style relationship where you communicated to people uh, over long distances. Sometimes no. you, you met them personally, you engaged. Yes, I met him several times in person uh, because our pen work, Writers in Pen, uh, Writers in Prison, was centered in London. And the office of the Writers in Prison Committee was in London. So um, there was a manager, a director. Um, Sarah Wyatt, she was fantastic. She had come from Amnesty uh, and had and later worked for Penn for 20 years. And I think she's still one of the um, uh, people they consult on um, things Turkish and so on. Um, she was the one who had the contact from the beginning. I met Rand through her at the book fair when we had a long talk because the um, international pen had known that he was in, in uh, danger and had had lots of contacts with him, particularly uh, Sarah had uh, very much contact with everybody in Turkey. He she was in Turkey all the time. Um, and then I met Ranting again. Uh, after the trial against Oran Pamuk, uh, Pamuk was given a reception on the next night. And this is when we had a longer talk, when I talked to Hunt Dink for quite some time. And he was kind enough because he saw I was kind of lost. I was I didn't speak the language and I knew only a couple of people or only those who uh, came from the outside. And he was kind enough to guide me around and introduce me and we talked a lot and as I said he was one of the warmest and friendliest people I've ever met. Yeah I mean there, there was um, uh, an, an anniversary event organized um, in Berlin uh, some years ago, before Corona times, um, and uh, I, I went to see Chandundar talk um, about his good friend Herant Dink, and um, yeah, he, he he said that it was a big a big loss to uh, not only to Turkey but also to the the journalistic world because right. he uh, right. uh, he was a very hopeful person and he believed that there could only ever be a solution through dialogue, through understanding. Right. Um, which so a non-violent person to die a violent death mm. is uh, is more than a crime. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, quite a number of on Cologne had quite a number of memorials to Hunting uh, over several years, and one of my friends was involved. Um, I was at that. Point so busy I was not available either. 
So I know that uh, Cologne had quite a number of evenings uh, of mem memories of hunting and of appreciation of his life. But all of this work that's being conducted by your colleagues at Penn and yourself, of course, as well, um, they, the, the, the government in Turkey. So okay, at the moment, everybody is, look, look, is, is looking at what's happening in Turkey under Erdogan. And um, yeah, obviously, Erdogan has a, has a particular reputation in, in international politics. But I mean, what you're referring to is uh, is an issue which not only existed at the, at the turn of the millennium, but it's it has existed for many many years. Um, and and is this a, is this like a sort of constant struggle between the different powers? You've got on the one hand the right wing, um, the very nationalistic uh, support for uh, a strong conservative Turkish government. Um, and on the other hand, you've got the reformists, um, or perhaps even the Gulenists. Um, I mean, where is this? You know, why do why why are Turkish political issues so difficult to to resolve? Why do elements from within Turkey feel they need such a strong hand? Um, I personally don't know anybody who would support uh, Erdogan. Uh, I don't know anybody who would support the military government that was preceding his uh, his uh, dictatorship. Let's call it that. Um, even Erdogan had different times when I started in Writers in Prison and got involved in Turkey. Uh, we had hopes that after a uh, revamping of the criminal code, um, certain paragraphs would never reappear under Erdogan. Uh, that the the courts and the parliament would uh, erase the uh, insult laws. The insult laws were insult to the flag, insult to uh, Kemal Atatürk, in, uh, insult to Turkishdom, whatever that is. Um, so. They could be imprisoned for, for years and years and years if uh, they were simply called uh, or, or um, considered to have insulted something. Um, when the, um, the criminal code had been revised, these clauses reappeared in different spots. And it was after that that uh, Erdogan became very, very openly uh, dictatorial, um, Islamist, and uh, unbearable and dangerous. Yeah, and unfortunately, this has continued to the present day, and he, he remains a thorn, um, I think, to the um, to, to the ideas that uh, the EU had for. Turkey, I think, some time ago, but uh, that seems to have passed anyway, and there doesn't seem to be any uh, change on the horizon. Um, but it's interesting, isn't there's it? A strong, there's a strong mm. element still there in Turkey who resists the uh, the regime of Erdogan, and they're working against, uh, or they're working for change. Mm. And I know that International Pen has not stopped uh, supporting those who are in trouble by uh, fighting against Erdogan. Mm. Unfortunately, every, I suppose whenever these people reach a certain stage, then he always introduces this uh, sort of fake coup style scenario, which allows him to uh, arrest uh, all of the troublemakers or people that he perceives as being troublemakers. Because I can't imagine that the, the coup was uh, unknown to him. Um, when it happened, I think I can't remember when it was exactly, but uh, a few years ago, uh, it, it just seems yeah, it just seemed too too convenient for his policies. Um, there's something I learned when I worked for Penn and got involved in learning about so many different societies, so many different uh, periods in history where the same thing happens. Um, these um, 
methods, these mechanisms are not new. They will not ever go away. The only thing we can do is try to contain them because to divide a country is very, very good for those in power. Uh, to um, suppress, if you have people who follow you, you, I know it from knowing about German history, um, there were people, of course, who were not Nazi, but there were too few who fought it. Um, we all can understand why they, some of them didn't, because their families would have been killed. They, they would have uh, not had a chance to really uh, join up, but it was the lack of resistance. And to me, resistance against that kind of, um, you can almost call it theocracy in terms of, of Erdogan, because he thinks he's, he's, uh, he's God in, in Turkey. Like a sultan of some sort. Yes. Um, so, I mean, he's the, the civil and the divine order. Um, and again, that resistance has to be taught and has to be learned. And I th hope that in, in Germany or in Europe, through the first and the second world war where my country was always on the on the on the wrong side that we all have learned that resistance is a must that you have to teach kids to resist to say no but it's a strange concept isn't it in many ways because you're essentially inspiring the revolutionary element within your future generations so, um, I mean, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I just, just, it's just not revolutionary. Play. It's just no. protective, self-protective. Mm. But then you know, this is this is what the people who defend the Second Amendment in the USA keep saying. Um, you know, the right to bear arms um, is for them protected because of that fundamental uh, purpose. And I'm against the Second Amendment because I think that there's you know, there's no need for everybody to be armed. Um, no, to be armed and to say no are two widely different things. You know, okay. um, I don't mean in the saying no, a, a child who says no when somebody comes and wants to touch him or her um, has to be taught that they have the freedom to do, that they don't have to uh, give kisses to, to every adult who comes close. Mm -hmm. And this is the no I would like to have instilled in society. That um, you can say no to any movement or any direction that you think is wrong. That's, in, that's part of democracy. Sure. Whereas um, the Second Amendment, to me, is not part of democracy, but it is of uh, violent anti-reaction uh, uh, against other people. I've, I've lived long enough in America and I had weapons in the house and my uh, brother-in-law went with a gun to uh, work for a liquor store in, in Kentucky. All these things I couldn't understand and I know there are quite a number of people in America who don't understand it either. Yeah. That's part of the division in, in America, which has been kindled over generations now. Yeah, it's hard to remove that. Uh, I mean, the Second Amendment for many people is it's the most important amendment, unfortunately. And it's, it's practically the same for Democrats and Republicans. You, you can't even split it um, yeah, you know, that way. I mean, at the moment, Democrats are more inclined towards control of, of guns and uh, the disbursement, as it were. Um, but there are still lots and lots of Democrats who are also armed. Um, that depends on which way you look. Um, if you know you don't have a chance to uh, to erase the Second Amendment, you are. Uh, 
try to control it. And this is what the Democrats are do, trying to do. Uh, I know that many Democrats are against the Second Amendment. And there is there are more and more voices uh, saying we need we need to change the constitution. Mm. It's it's interesting because you also from our discussions you 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 said that you were in 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 the USA you know from 1960 and you you were there when Kennedy was elected and essentially it was Kennedy who moved the Democrats more to the the center as it were of politics before then uh, they were also uh, I can only imagine as being a bit more right wing um and and so it, it must be interesting for you as well to see this shift because at the moment the democrats paint, paint themselves as uh, the party of liberal politics um but they were not always that um life changes politics mm. change uh, in america the parties have switched roles the democrats uh in the time during the time of the Civil War, where the Southern Democrats were pro-slavery, the Northern few Democrats were against slavery. It was the Republicans who were against slavery. Mm. So after the war, after Reconstruction, the roles switched. The Democrats uh, became more um, aware of, of democratic rules and um, social responsibility, particularly then in the Second World War uh, with FDR, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But uh, on the other hand, the Republicans uh, turned right and the Republicans took over in the South from the old Democrats who had been they had been devastated, of course, because their slaves had gone. They didn't have the power anymore. And so the the uh, Republicans took over. And all of a sudden, the Republicans were the rightest force and the Democrats were not, not necessarily, never were really the leftist cause. Mm -hmm. um, there was a Labour Party, which never really had the the power to do anything but it still yeah. exists it mm. still exists uh, international politics are constant changes the methods pretty much stay the stay the same but the alliances change yeah, and I, I guess you, you also saw this um, you know, directly through your work because you, you, you had to operate with a lot of these countries, as you mentioned the list earlier, so Turkey and Iran and among others, um, perhaps not, not easy to communicate with these countries. Uh, how was it for you as a woman? Because recently there's been a bit of controversy with how uh, Erdogan treated um, Ursula von der Leyen. Um, how were you treated by these more liberal thinkers as a woman um, when you went to, to these I was countries? Working from Western countries, I was working into the countries where the perpetrators were. I was never in Iran. The Iranians I knew were here. They were our contacts to their friends in Iran. Um, the other contact was through the German embassy in Iran. So my direct contact was never with uh, right-wing Iranians. So I, I knew that their way of, of dealing with women, uh, because we had quite a number of women uh, uh, refugees, but um, I never had any personal involvement in that and no personal experience with with that question mm. and this is what happened in many ways i was still i was still the outsider i had ways of uh, getting in and getting information out but i had no we none of us had the power to go in and change anything 
we had to rely on the fact that public pressure, economic pressure, political pressure, and the circumstances themselves caused a change of idea and a change of methods in these countries. The, whenever a pen member or anybody says, oh, we got him out of prison, I, I get furious because that's impossible. You need help. You need help. You need a mass of people. You need publicity. You need the politics. You need, particularly in modern times, of course, the economic uh, angle to have any effect in any one of the countries, and I'm speaking of China or Iran or uh, Vietnam or, or whatever. And um, Turkey, uh, of course, is in that group. Um, it's, it's a different way of, um, it's a different way of looking at my work. I'm not doing any work. We are doing the work and we need this, the luck of changes in the countries. And, and uh, what Penn does, I guess, w with its writer network is to draw attention to these issues through literature, through poetry, through culture. Essentially, these are the main four or arms, as it were, at your disposal. Um, first of all, the research in those countries, uh, or in many countries, we have some 170-something pen centers in the world. Um, not all of them national centers, there are some exile centers. But um, so we are represented in, let's say, 150 nations. So through our members, we get the most direct information of what is happening, where they are, whether they need help, whether their friends need help. And this is how we get the information out of those countries. We get our information into those countries, of course, to, through our members, but that doesn't help anything. We need public support. We need the uh, we need the press. We need the rapid actions. Rapid actions is one of the ma major means for writers in prison. And Amnesty has something uh, similar. Lightning uh, actions, I think, is what they call it. That is uh, when there's something urgent. The news goes out to all pen members and all all pen centers to the writers and prison committees to uh, international agencies we are uh, or, uh, pen international pen is a consultant to unesco and the united nations in terms of human rights um, all these all this information goes out to wherever people work and live who can help and who can activate their press or activate, um, write letters to their uh, representatives and to their um, embassies, so to speak. That's one of the major methods of fighting repression, because that's what they respond to sometimes. When we see, when we watch movies, there's always this, this thing about reputation as in um, when for example a plot line doesn't really come across as too convincing and the baddie can't be convinced to do this or that or be killed or whatever um, they they always bring on this thing oh but the baddie doesn't want his or her international reputation to be damaged and so therefore they're more likely to listen how, how important do you think international reputation actually is uh, in influencing domestic policy? It varies. It varies because it, certain things have to come together. An economic interest, a political interest, and maybe a personal interest must come together that um, a perpetrator country or their representatives have a change of mind. This is not something that you can say um, 
this is what I meant. This is you cannot say we did this or this um, method got them to change their mind. A lot of things have to come together, particularly in the countries themselves. Mm. Yeah. And um, I mean, because often we hear democratic uh, representatives say when talking about other countries, it's not for us to comment. That's uh, that's a domestic issue. Uh, and, and yet the, the democratic that's an international are... convention um, mm. and it's a safety net for politics at home. OK, but it still happens, as in, for example, you know, Obama uh, commented on um, on Brexit. I believe, or was it Obama? Yeah, Obama, I believe, commented on Brexit. Uh, Trump commented on, on Brexit quite famously. Uh, Biden has uh, has suggested that he's very pro-EU uh, with regards to his stance towards Brexit. Um, and, you know, vice versa, as in politicians in the UK were also quite uh, vocal in their support of Trump. We're talking at least uh, people like uh, right. Nigel Farage. We're talking about conservatives here. Others were more circumspect in saying, you know, we don't want to get involved. Um, but I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, obviously leader of the Labour Party, he was also very vocal in his criticism of uh, of Trump. So. You know, this maxim that we don't get involved in the politics of other countries is is it's a falsehood. It's a defense mechanism. It's, it's also who is speaking. Uh, if it's a line of politics or policy, um, the uh, head of departments still uh, say what they want. It's the people who are bound by the 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 civil servants end of politics, they are bound by, we cannot uh, interfere with other countries. Everybody else does when they, if they dare and when they dare. Um, I felt that uh, when I was talking to the embassy or to the, to the uh, foreign office, it was the civil servant end of politics that was most rule abiding. Let's put it that way. Okay. The people who worked yeah. on the side were not, and the people who worked on top were not either. And we as human rights groups uh, were far out. We, we did what we wanted. This is why I stayed in that corner as long as I did, because that's where I felt comfortable, where I could say what I wanted. Because when I came back from America and then from England, I was in Germany for the first time as an adult, as really a politically minded adult, where I had the passport and where I could say what I wanted to say. And they had to they had to protect me. So I came back saying, now I'm going to say what I really feel and really think. And I, I, I did through the international, uh, through the international activities, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating to hear. Um, and, and this, so a lot of the topics that you've just spoken of, uh, were with regards to your work with, uh, Penn Germany. So we haven't yet talked about Penn International too much, have we? Or have you? Did you put the two together, as it were? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, when the the um, job for German Penn was on the root level, on the uh, the basic level, because as I said, I had to do everything myself. In uh, working for International Penn, I was the president of uh, some of 110 or more uh, writers in prison committee, uh, committees worldwide, meaning um, we were all joined together at International Pen Writers in Prison Committee in London. I had uh, direct contact, of course. I was um, in constant touch with the people who researched, we always had four or five researchers and we had the director of the committee 
uh, Sarah Wyatt. And uh, policies were made, general policies were made in London. We got the support from London, we got the information from London, and we filtered it back to London, whatever we had achieved. Um, that was not work at the basis. I was all of a sudden representative of all writers and prison committees, meaning um, my name came up even if I only had signed a letter but hadn't really composed it. Um, it was I was the front the front girl, so to speak. Okay. Okay, so maybe in a future episode, then we can, or the next episode, we can talk more in detail about this, uh, the, the writers in prison uh, side of things. How long were you there for so, you know, heavily involved with uh, writers in prison specifically? Uh, writers in prison, um, as a German pen, I started helping um, or adding to the uh, German, the German uh, end of it. Um, in the late 90s, I w became a uh, writers in prison uh, vice president in 2000, and I stayed until 2007. And I was uh, president of International Pen Writers in Prison Committee from 2004 through to 2009. Okay. All right. So th this will probably be the next major installment then um, for our podcast so I'll just make a note of that um, so just for just for the, the curiosity or to satisfy my curiosity what, what's happening now in Myanmar for example so this seems like a classic case of uh, of a government which has been uh, overthrown by its military even though before there were some very distasteful episodes uh, with regards to the Rohingya um, uh, from the previous government, but anyway, it was a democratically elected government. Also, we are led to believe, uh, even though the military had uh, um, already 25% of the parliament according to their their rules of election. Um, so, how would Penn then start to get involved? Uh, the the government's been overthrown. The military's come to power. They're starting to clamp down on uh, news agencies, uh, social media. What's the process? Um, we were very, writers in prison was very much involved for almost decades to uh, fight for uh, San Suu Kyi. Um, I think many of or many of the people who worked for her and tried to uh, back her with our with our few means. Uh, were very disappointed when uh, she didn't speak out uh, against her own people when the persecution of the Rodinus came. Um, I met one of the persons who was, she was in, in prison, I think, for five and a half years. Um, she was working with Aung San Suu Kyi um, I met her in London, and I just realized that she has become a member of the board of German Pen. So there is direct information in German Pen, uh, not in German Pen, sorry, International Pen. Um, there is direct information through somebody who's been there, who knows every part of it and who can filter that information into the Writers in Prison Committee and into international pen uh, on the highest level as well. So um, I'm sure that they're trying very hard in one way to help Aung San Suu Kyi, but also to uh, pressure for different uh, type of politics in the country. As I said, whether they succeed is another question. It's usually probably now a question of China and 
and Russia and not of any uh, Western country or influence from Western country, but maybe it helps. And whatever happens, we cannot, we cannot stop trying to help because we never know when we have the good luck that it really works. Yeah, it's just such a tragedy that, uh, that there are some countries where the people have suffered so much in the past uh, and they feel that they've turned a, not a page but a chapter uh, only for those pages to be turned back again or revisited upon them. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's horrific, I can only imagine, for the people involved. Um, remember the country of your parents. Yeah. yeah Armenia is not in a good situation right now. No, absolutely not. And um, yeah, the, I guess in some ways the irony is that the uh, you know, Pashinyan who sort of came to power on this wave of anti-corruption and so on um, may perhaps have led to you know, of this young uh, independent country's history, uh, the worst 12 months uh, in its you know, history. And uh, unfortunately, this is perhaps a sign that you know, what, what uh, Machiavellian politics uh, suggests is you still do need a certain amount of corruption. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm not yet certain that that's necessarily the case, but it seems to be the case, at least in, in Armenia and in former Soviet republics, at least. Um, I hope it's not necessary. <laughs> I hope uh, we can uh, keep it at a very, very low pace. Um, I'm all for resisting, but we also have to resist in our own countries here, mm. because in a minor way that is, excuse me, that is going on in many countries and in many societies, uh, large and small. You know the corruption problem in China, yeah. for instance. Yeah. Well, Where the, I mean, the high-ranking uh, civil servants are uh, put in jail one by one by now for corruption. And nobody knows whether it's for political uh, reasons or for corruption or because their superiors were corrupt and the whole lower echelon is going to be thrown into prison with them. Mm. Um, again, that's it. It is not a Chinese problem. It's it's a problem in all countries. Yes. Yeah, it's a human issue, I think, um, in, uh, because you know the things that you mentioned there that you highlight are, are also common practice in uh, banking institutions. If you are promoted within a generation of vice presidents and one person does something wrong against the rules, uh, you know the entire uh, level is removed uh, as a subsequent uh, move to protect itself. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I mean, there are these mechanisms in place in. Uh, our free market um, e economies as well. You know, then we can also think about McCarthyism, um, when you know, anybody who they wanted to get rid of politically, they just called them a communist. Um, and that was enough uh, to besmirch their name enough to remove them from uh, you know, sort of popular debates. So as you say, th these are problems which are you know, relevant Learned for by every society from from uh, predecessors. Think of torture. Yeah. There are no new methods in torture. The methods in torture were created long before classical times. And they kind of were inherited by every uh, society that wanted to wanted to use it for power reasons. Um, okay, the the, uh, the methods are the same. The means might differ. Today we have chemical means and uh, can do a lot more in terms of scientific endeavors in torture. But the basic torture is the same. Yeah, the human body is still the same. Uh, we still react to pain uh, in the same ways. So right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. And that was a big, big problem in, in Iran. We had quite a number of our friends who came into exile 
and had been tortured badly. Yeah, the, the, this was also a factor in the Iran-Iraq war, um, where uh, those who had been uh, taken prison, taken prisoner, were tortured to obviously get whatever information they could. And some of the reports on those techniques are quite horrific. Um, yes. So I, mean, I won't go into any details, but you know, you, you're you're right, and perhaps this, and this also. I'm sorry. Um, yes. There's. It's the same thing, whether it's you torture uh, people of a different country, of, a, of your enemy, and here they were torturing people of their own country, mm-hmm. declaring them enemies. And that's also a method of um, creating enmity that has translated from, from early times till today. Sure. And in truth, also, you know, old countries such as Iran, which, you know, I mean, it has a history of over 3,000 years. Um, you know, they've had time to perfect some of these methods, I guess. Um, and the, the younger countries have essentially learned from them um, in, in many sure. ways. Sure. Sure. Because um, torture is not necessarily dependent on a system of country. It can be a system of society, of clan. It's yeah, um, it's not bound to the nationality business. So um, it is in new countries, it's in old countries, um, and I'm not quite sure whether the so-called new countries or new societies um, landed from Iran or Iraq or whatever, it might have been in their own culture already. Well, I mean, if we think, because new countries, obviously, we're talking about, you know, relatively speaking, the USA. um, And, you know, I'm pretty sure that uh, the Europeans picked up quite a few of their own torture methods over the the years through medieval times, but also before then. Um, And some of those were also picked up upon their trips to the in the Crusades. So, um, you know, these things are unfortunately passed on bit by bit through the the, the ruling classes, as it were. Well, to me, uh, the new countries are the ones that became independent in the 60s, which is in Africa and Asia. Okay, sure. So, you know, I was I was thinking in in newer terms and Mm. uh, you have uh, problems in Asia, you have problems in all of Africa with torture, not at not at an organized in an organized way as you have it in. I'm sure Iraq has has torture, uh, Iran has torture. Um, Many, many countries use it. In particularly in prison, um, it's not it's not new, it's not old, it's unfortunately everywhere. And I think the only thing we can do is stem against it. Um, it's like the Sisyphus element. You have to roll up the heavy stone up the mountain, no matter how many times it rolls over your back back to the to the mm. valley mm. yeah yeah um yeah unfortunately nowadays there are there seem to be lots of stones and uh you know the valleys get deeper and deeper but uh yeah i'd, I'd like to think that support is, is is never too far and it seems to be we do seem to be entering one of those situations where we're turning a corner now whether that's because social media has actually begun uh, to bear fruit I don't know I think that's far too optimistic a perspective to have but you know when we look at the growing support for certain movements such as me to black lives matter um these are movements with you know, real power, real international um, influence. And, and hopefully on, on the basis of similar kinds of movements, we can also start to you know, affect change in other areas, in other arenas. 
Um, Karin, I know that you know talking for you know such a long time is not easy, um, especially as most of our conversations are you know are heavily burdensome upon you because you do um, most of the talking. So um, you know I understand that uh, you know maybe this is probably a good time to uh, to take a break. But um, yeah, do you have any sort of final thoughts on on what we've uh, discussed? No, I think we have a lot more thoughts next time. Yeah. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Then, um, yeah. Thank you very much again uh, for you know, your wonderful insight, um, and of course, um, yeah, informing us on some of these uh, these difficult chapters uh, from your important work at, at Penn International, but also, of course, what began in Penn, Germany. Thank you very much, Karin. Thank you very much. <laughs>